So this morning, we're looking at universalism, that second half of Unitarian Universalism. This church is officially incorporated in name as Hope Unitarian Church. Actually, Fred Podorf told me it's incorporated as Broken Arrow Hope Unitarian Church. So we tend to dismiss the universalist ideas that grew up together and frequently cross-pollinated with Unitarian ones. Yet many of the values we hold dear today gained traction through universalism. In basic terms, universalists are known as the Christians who dismissed hell as a permanent punishment. But they stood then and stand now for more than that. I want to look beneath their historical heresy of dismissing hell to more philosophical and justice-seeking underpinnings. For example, the universalist rejection of fear as a theological virtue springs to mind with so many recent news stories and images of violence and abuse. The repulsive self proclaimed caliphate, ISIS, is spreading fear through its well-financed, carefully scripted, and promoted violence. In the quiet of my early morning home when no one is up yet, it's still dark, it's a delicious time, and I'm reading for this sermon. I click on the website for the National Domestic Abuse Hotline, and the screen goes that annoying gray. A light box appears, which usually means an ad of some sort will cover up the page until I find the X to turn it off. The dimming light box is an unwelcomed intruder into my peace and solitude. Then I read what it actually says. Safety alert. Computer use can be monitored and is impossible to completely clear. If you are afraid your internet page usage might be monitored, call the National Abuse Hotline. The calm of the morning is shattered, imagining the men and women needing that message while brave enough to reach out for help. These are people living in profound danger, always looking over their shoulders for fear for the abuser in their life. They need a website to be attentive to their welfare, to warn them of invisible traces they might be leaving behind in the effort to escape hell. There has been an 84% increase in phone calls to that hotline since that video leaked of former NFL player Ray Rice knocking his then-fiancee unconscious in an elevator. 
The hotline is overwhelmed by the calls to the point of not having enough staff. Many calls are now going unanswered. And the viral video made men and women callers realize the abusive relationships they suffer are not unique. The director of the hotline, Katie Ray Jones, reports, we had an outpouring saying, oh my God, I didn't realize this happened to other people. This raw example of domestic violence has hit a national nerve, and the grainy video emboldened a discussion across the country, across the world, and emboldened personal action. Under two different hashtags, hashtag why I stayed and hashtag why I left, the abused are pouring out their stories on the internet. And I must stop here momentarily to acknowledge abuse is not confined to a single stratum of society. Because of physical and cultural power dynamics, men are often the abusers, but not always. The stronger and the healthier of any gender are abusers of the younger or the weaker or the elderly. So if anyone in this sanctuary is struggling from an abusive relationship, local and national hotline numbers are in your insert. You may call them or you may call me on my cell phone if you are unsafe. And also, you may be just the person to reach out and support someone you know. You are now armed with information to become an ally to someone in need. Although use the greatest discretion and be prepared for not having your advice followed. Abuse creates a vicious cycle that is very, very difficult to interrupt. Creating fear. Making someone afraid is central to the destructive dance of abuse. An abuser masterfully manipulates fear to create a prison difficult to escape. As the author of our reading that Janet read explained, I felt passionately in love when I wasn't scared for my life. But the longer the relationship continued, the harder it became to tease out the love from the fear. So we're considering fear and abuse because religion often informs this damning dynamic. Many religious traditions teach abusive elements of fear as part of their theology. You can see how this religious control unfolds in the 140-character shorthand one person tweets under the hashtag, why I stayed. She tweets, I tried to leave the house 
after one abusive episode, and he blocked me. He slept in front of the door the entire night. She tweets again, I stayed because I thought love was enough to conquer all. And then she tweets, I stayed because my pastor told me God hates divorce. It didn't cross my mind that God might hate abuse, too. The idea of a God who would condemn any person to the hell of a failing marriage or an, ab an abusive one is directly, directly opposed to our universalist tradition. Universalism declares there is no fear in love. Love and fear are incompatible, and the fear needs to be completely teased out. And we have come to this conclusion over time. Historically, our universalist pioneers were pushing against the strains of Christianity where God was a harsh and random judge. This Calvinist God was essentially locking away unbelievers in hell and then sleeping in front of the gates, making sure no one could get out for eternity. While we're not debating the existence of God today, we are looking, for, looking at fear as the marked card God supposedly played to cheat and control the game of life. The threat of hell as an eternal afterlife punishment is one of those cheats, robbing many believers of peace of mind, self-esteem, and a healthy, realistic worldview. In forming a comprehensive theology or worldview, every religion concerns itself with death. It asks, what comes after death, if anything? And Christianity's response is a cos that cosmology of heaven and hell. The geography of heaven above and hell below are notions more ancient than Christianity or Judaism. The sky as a dome, a solid firmament overhead, and a grim, colorless underworld below the ground are shared ideas across ancient cultures. Hell is not unique to Christianity. Other great world religions have hells of their own, but with surprisingly familiar scenery. Hindus number up to several million versions of hell, while Buddhists have seven to several thousand hells. But none of these hold a soul eternally. A student of the history of hell, Alice Turner writes, no other religion ever raised hell to such an importance as Christianity, under which it became a fantastic underground kingdom of cruelty, surrounded by dense strata of legend, myth, religious creed, and what, 
from a distance we might call dubious psychology. The Christian landscape of hell is the largest shared construction project in imaginative history. And its chief architects have been creative giants. You saw images from some of the painters and authors, Homer, Vigil, Plato, Augustine, Dante, Michelangelo, Milton, Goethe, Blake. And I started thinking of some of the rock and roll. So since Christianity beginnings, there have been Christians who haven't bought the orthodox depiction, but have questioned prevailing orthodox images of hell. Their heresies never quite took hold until the 18th century. Ah, enlightenment. A growing number of believers came to understand that a torturous, eternal afterlife in hell made no sense. Why would God do such a thing? When these universalists read and studied the New Testament, they found another story beside this God as the eternal abuser. The universalists asked, if Christ died on the cross to atone the sins of humanity, why was salvation only for a select few humans? Salvation was clearly universal, and they could point to Bible verses to prove it. They would quote 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 22. For as all die in Adam, so all will be made alive in Christ. And if that inclusive universality was not clear, they would point to countless others. The Gospel of John abounds in universality. He is atoning sacrifice for our sins and not only for us, but also for the sins of the whole world. Any other interpretations of the teachings of Jesus and his crucifixion was a form of religious emotional abuse, everyday terrorism. But with universalism, the grip of fear beyond human control began to loosen. And the effect of removing this imposed anxiety of eternal punishment is not simply a correction in one's theology, but results in the complete turnabout of priorities during one's lifetime. For example, a critical figure in colonial universalism is the physician Benjamin Rush. And he makes the direct connection between universalism and the promising democratic political structure being formed. Rush writes, a belief in God's universal love to all his creatures and that he will finally restore all of those of them that are miserable to happiness is a polar truth. It leads to truths upon all subjects, more especially upon the subject of government. 
It establishes the equality of mankind. It abolishes the punishment of death for any crime and converts jails into houses of repentance and reformation. Hence, universalism plays a larger role in the founding ideals of this country with its philosophical emphasis on equality than typically reported in history books. And then, as we walk through the evolution of universalism, it further evolves in the 19th century under the inspiration of Hosea Ballou. You heard a little bit of him earlier. Again, he's taking aim at Christianity's orthodoxy. And he's arguing against the infinite nature of sin. He brings sin into the present. Sin is an immediate evil, not one awaiting afterlife judgment. Our mistakes, our selfishness, our crimes cause immediate suffering. With this, I do, uh, with this idea, Baloo brings the controlling, manipulative, religious dread of hell out of an unknown future. He preaches. The only fear that can be sure to prevent crime is the fear of committing it. And therefore, that sin itself ought to be considered the greatest evil and the evil most to be dreaded. Over the next two centuries, universalism becomes less concerned with hell. It increasingly teaches the solidarity of all humans. Its emphasis on unity drives an imperative towards social transformation, social justice. Universalism embraces the doctrines that God is love, playing a significant role in the social gospel, anti-slavery, and suffrage movements. And then up in the 20th century, Clarence Skinner. We have a printing publishing house called Skinner Publications, named after Clarence Skinner. He's a 20th century universalist. And he embraces a utopian ideal of universal brotherhood. He writes, universalism triumphantly holds to the universal salvation of all mankind. It believes that human souls are children of God with a spark of divine in their nature. And you can hear echoes of Skinner's universalist ideas of brother and sisterhood in our seven principles. We affirm the inherent worth and dignity of every human. We expect justice, equality, and compassion in human relations. We insist, we insist on the democratic process within our congregations and in society at large. And we expect the independent web of all life universally is worthy of our respect. So our tracing this evolution of universalist ideals over four centuries traces our elimination of fear as a valid means of social control. Fear does not form healthy, transformative human communities. 
we stand as a religious tradition electing to remove all threats of any supernatural and external abusive dysfunction from our theologies. The philosopher Bertrand Russell's scathing rejection of fear in religion is ours too. In his famous 1927 lecture, Why I'm Not a Christian, he explains, Religion is based, I think, primarily and mainly upon fear. It is partly the terror of the unknown and partly, as I have said, the wish to feel that you have a kind of elder brother who will stand by you in all your troubles and disputes. Fear is the basis of the whole thing. Fear of the mysterious, fear of defeat, fear of death. Fear is the parent of cruelty. And therefore, it is no wonder if cruelty and religion have gone hand in hand. It is because fear is at the basis of those two things. Science can teach us, and I think our own hearts can teach us, no longer to look around for imaginary supports, no longer to invent allies in the sky, but rather to look to our own efforts here below to make this world a better place to live in, instead of the sort of place that the churches in all these centuries have made it. Russell rejects all religions as fear-based. And almost a hundred years later, I find his description is still an accurate portrayal of fundamentalist threads in many contemporary religions. I wouldn't dismiss religion wholesale. And Russell neglects the possibility of critics within religion who are keenly aware of the dangers of fear and our universalist ancestors are an example and so are we I argue not all of religion is based on fear Unitarian Universalism insists on acknowledging our very human fears. We do not explain away our anxieties over the mysterious, our anxiety of defeat, our anxieties of death. These natural fears are not used as hammers of destruction in this church. We hold them up to admit they exist and to examine their potency so they don't get in the way of love, of justice, of community. We are committed to teasing out any fear disguised as love. We will talk about hell at Hope Unitarian Church, but not as a form of inescapable emotional torture. Our discussions of hell involve discovering what pulls us away from our values deadens our communications, destroys our integrity, and makes us miserable. Hell is what abuses 
what creates fear and separates us from love. In this lifetime, we come together to expose and root out these hells. May it be so. We give away our plate every single Sunday, and this month it goes to the Bird Research Center in Bartlesville. Give generously.